flip over to Habakkuk now. We're going to wrap up the book of Habakkuk. And I hope that, as it has been for me, this series for you has been kind of uh, illuminating that some of these little books that we're not as familiar with are, are filled with riches if we're willing to, to mine them out. And so uh, we wrap up Habakkuk today in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. As if you stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read aloud if you join me silently. God's word by his prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the to the choir master with strings. Amen. Please be seated. Let's uh, let's ask God for His blessing on His word. Our Father, I ask that by Your breathed out word, You would teach us. Reprove and correct us and grow us up in righteousness this morning. We ask that you train us up into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. By your Spirit, illumine our eyes and soften our hard hearts and open our ears to hear the Word. And let us not be hearers of the Word only, but doers of the Word. For your glory and our joy in the name and the merits of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. I want to read a familiar story to you. I'm sure it's familiar to you. It's from Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell on them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Their sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked... I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's what Job exemplifies. Job treasures the giver above the gift. But I thought this this week, through each family represented here this morning, I, I noticed each of us has been through our own 
a Job moment. I think almost every family here in the past couple of months. I'm sure we'll all agree that it's something on a a micro scale compared to Job, but life is hard. You know what Westminster calls this life? Calls it our state of sin and misery. Our state of sin and misery. So if we're going to have joy in this state of sin and misery, we have to know that life-giving faith rests not on circumstances, but on a person. When our faith is properly placed, we, we can't help but rejoice. And even the greatest sorrows can't prevent us from rejoicing. So just as Job, when he heard the news, tore his clothes, shaved his head, he fell on the ground, he's in sorrow, he's in grief, and yet he worshipped. And he says later in chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He takes his life, life itself, he will hope in God. So this is the message that we hear from Habakkuk as we conclude this series. And with Babylon on the horizon, his confession of faith is one of joy and strength in the Lord, his God. I hope that this series and this sermon will have helped strengthen your faith in the God of Job and the God of Habakkuk and your God as you are enduring various trials. So we have to begin here with a grounded faith in God has to begin with this simple confession, and that is that God is the sovereign giver and the sovereign taker. And that's the first point this morning, that God is the sovereign giver and the sovereign taker. And we're quick to confess that truth in theory. It makes a lot of hypothetical sense. But our resolve is tested when we when we lose something that we consider precious to us. God, God is hypothetically wise in smooth sailing, but when the storm comes, we cry, why are you sleeping? Can't you see we're about to die? Uh, praise God, Kelly's been doing much better lately, but for a few weeks there, it was like, well, she's calling me home from work. We have to go to the ER. We had to cancel family reunion plans. Kelly wasn't able to drive safely. Uh, small potatoes compared to Habakkuk or, or Joe. But still, life is disrupted. It's uncomfortable, and you start to wonder, and you question God, okay, uh, I have things to do. I have callings that you put in my life, and you you seem to be disrupting them. (laughs) What gives here? I love what Habakkuk says in verse 17. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. This, this verse hit me strangely this week. It, it, there's one passage in Habakkuk, aside from maybe chapter 2, verse 4, that we're familiar with. It's this one right here. This is the happy one. Jeff Thomas pointed out that it's because we're attracted to the comforting bits of Scripture that we often neglect the rest. But we're familiar with this section reading these verses in the context of the whole, as we've done through this series, this this particular question jumped out at me. Why is verse 17 focused on agricultural imagery? 
the, the whole book is about warfare, about the, the attack of the Babylons. And so, Babylonians, suddenly he's talking about agriculture. Though the fig tree should not blossom, fruit not be on the vines, produce of the olive fail, fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. The Babylonians can't control the produce of the olive. They, can't, they have nothing to do with whether or not the trees blossom. So why does he say this? And I think really he's taking the Babylonians out of the equation. Because the question isn't so much about the mode of God's judgment as it is about God. His question is, is God good in the midst of trial? So he reduces it really down to our most basic necessity, to, to food. Should God remove that most basic essential ingredient, the sustenance, sustenance of life, is he still good? Is he still faithful? Is he still trustworthy? I mean, imagine if we're, we're so used to an abundance of food at arm's reach anytime we want it, and if suddenly by a, a providential hand, act of God, we found ourselves on the edge of starvation, how, how would you and I respond to something like that? That would be a true disruption. That would be, in our country, probably mass pandemonium. And the sorrow of friends and family and children growing thin and even dying from starvation is sorrow on a level that I can't even comprehend. Would our faith withstand tragedy on that scale? If it was our fridge that was empty and our child that was wasting away, is God still God? Is God good? Is he wise? This gets to the root of that question that Habakkuk's been dealing with, is do we love God, or do we love what God does for us? I'm sure you've heard it before. Sarah Edwards' letter to her daughter after Jonathan Edwards died is beautiful. I'll ask you to hear it again, because it's very encouraging. She says, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that, may we, that we may kiss the rod, and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left to us. We are all given to God, and there I am in love to be. Your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. This is a picture of faith in God's sovereign right to take the gift. Jonathan Edwards died from complications from a smallpox vaccine, correct? And too early. Now, if you're like me, you are probably thinking at this point, I do not have the faith of Job. I'm not Sarah Edwards. Those, those people feel like an impossible standing. But we, we must remember the well-worn truth that it's not about the strength of our faith, about the strength of the object of our faith. The more we grasp that truth, truth, the greater our faith will grow. So the, the goal of this sermon is not to push you to try harder to muster up more faith. The goal of this sermon is to commend to you the trustworthiness of God, even in the worst of this life of sin and misery. There's no clock up there. You better get ready. 
Abel hates green beans. Uh, we make him eat them, though, because we don't want him to be a picky eater. If you, supposedly, if you feed babies a food a certain amount of time, you know, sort of like it. Sometimes we can be like Abel, though, choking down the green beans. Yes, God gives and takes away, but I don't have to like what he does. Admittedly, many providences are difficult to swallow, but we learn from Habakkuk that even unspeakable tragedy can't prevent us from rejoicing and taking joy in our God. So the second point this morning is that faith finds joy in God. Faith finds joy in God. The 1913 Webster's Dictionary, I prefer the old dictionary, which is better. But that dictionary defines joy in this way. The passion or emotion excited by the acquisition of expectation of good, pleasurable feelings or emotions caused by success, good fortune and the like, or by a rational prospect of possessing what we love or desire. Gladness, acceleration of spirits, delight. There was a time when I would have made a really hard line distinction between joy and happiness. And I think the spirit of the distinction is, is good. It's this. It's that joy is kind of a holy contentment that can run congruent with sorrow. Well, happiness is kind of a, a giddy glee focused on the pleasures of now and the immediate gratification. I think the spirit of that distinction is good, but I think really, in reality, the two words are very similar. They both represent warm, pleasurable emotions in response to good things. Warm, pleasurable emotions. The form folks aren't good at talking about our feelings. I least of all. But, but it's okay, even the frozen chosen have feelings. And I think it's appropriate to say that joy is a feeling of happiness, of, of delight, of enjoyment. It transcends emotion, but it is emotion. Joy is at the heart of God's purpose for our life. Isn't that what the first question and answer says in the Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Joy is a pleasurable feeling of gladness and exhilaration of spirits. Isn't verse 18 strange in light of verse 17? Let's read them both. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So does, does Habakkuk get the warm and fuzzies from pain? Is he a, a masochist? What is this source of his joy and rejoicing? Notice the source. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Not in his circumstances, but in God himself. That is the source of his joy. This is Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps covenant with his people. The God who is his salvation already, despite what may come. So it's not that suffering is some kind of good in itself, but suffering is simply that, that we possess, what we possess so far outweighs 
what we might lose and suffer. We, we have something better. And I want to give some body to this idea that, that what we have in God is superior to whatever we might lose, whatever earthly comforts might evade us and suffer. The first thing I want us to note is that God himself is better. He rejoices in God. God is better than anything we could ever possess. He is the only worthy object of all of our affection. If you turn over to Psalm 16. <coughs> Psalm 16 is a wonderful example of what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord and to delight in our God. In our God. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I shall say to the Lord, You are my God. I have no good apart from you. And as for the servants in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is such a rich psalm. Have we done this one in Sunday school? No. No, not yet. Well, perhaps one day we'll have a one-off sermon on this psalm, because it's incredible. So there's a few things I want us to see here. And the first is that God is psalmist's exclusive delight. There is no other. He says in verse 1, in him I take refuge. He recognizes that chasing after other gods will will only bring further sorrow for himself. There's a host of things I think that we take refuge in, that we lift up as idols above God. Food, entertainment, accolades, sex, alcohol, possessions, security, all of these things become idols of our hearts that we lift above God as, as refuges, refuges that we run to. But he finds exclusive refuge in God. The second thing is that delight in God produces a delight in his people. Two things go hand in hand. He says in verse 2, in the saints he finds a fullness of delight. He delights in God, he delights in the saints. When we are absent from one another, we should long for communion with the brethren. The, the covenant promise of, of all scripture is, simply boils down to Emmanuel, God with us. So, where you find the presence of God's people, you find God. So we should, with the psalmist in Psalm 84, too, say, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. The third thing that we should recognize here from Psalm 16 is that God's gifts are meant to be enjoyed. Not as an end in themselves, but they are meant to be enjoyed and they point us to God. 
He says, apart from the Lord, he has no good, but with the Lord, he has good. And in verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. These are good things that God has given us to be enjoyed. Uh, we, Kelly and I recently got a book. Bert, Bert Parsons came out with this uh, freshly translated copy of Calvin's little book on the Christian life. It's great. It's little, and it's on the Christian life. And it's a wonderful book. We both loved it. And, and he goes through and he shows how Christians are to take up their cross and to deny themselves. But then he has the last chapter. Is how do we use the good gifts of God in this life? And this is his comment. He says, Thus, if we consider the purpose for which he created food, we find he had, he had hurt. Uh, essentially, he has given us food for our necessity, but also our pleasure and enjoyment. He says, So too with clothes. The purpose was our adornment and honor in addition to our necessity. In the case of herbs, trees, and fruit, we considered the pleasantness of their appearance and charm of their smell, in addition to their various uses. If this weren't true, the prophet couldn't list among God's benefits wine, which gladdens the hearts of man, and oil, which makes his face shine. God has given us good gifts, and they're good to be enjoyed and to point to him, and it would be terrible error to divorce the gifts of God from gifts, to become ascetics, to reject the goodness of the name uh, in the name of seeking God. The danger is enjoying, not in enjoying the gifts, but in lifting the gifts above God. Now, of course, the most compelling gift which should draw our hearts and our affections upward to God is our salvation. Verse 18, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Back in Habakkuk. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is a funny thing to say, I think, that he'll take joy in the God of his salvation because the whole book, he, he realizes... The Babylonians are coming and destruction is going to happen. Why does he say, I take joy in the God of my salvation? Clearly he's thinking bigger picture here. God always saves those who are in his. And even if our end is torture and death, we'll find God to be a perfect Savior. It may sound trite, but it's at the core of the Christian life. In trials and suffering, recall the Savior. Remember Jesus. Remember the God of your salvation when you are in suffering. Jesus became like us in every respect except for sin. He was tempted. He was slandered. He was betrayed. His friends died. He, he took on our state of misery. He bore our sin. Remember Jesus in your sorrows. Horatio Spafford penned it this way through tears. As his daughter died. Though Satan should buffet, the trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Let that assurance control. The second thing that, that makes God better than worldly comfort is that God's chastisement produces a better fruit. I love to watch my kids have fun. It warms my heart to see them giggling and playing in the swimming pool or to eat a bowl of ice cream or to have a face full of chocolate. That, that's delightful. I love to see that. Or when they're playing with a new toy, how excited they are. But if my only gifts to them were fun activities, sweets, and toys, they would be miserable people. 
to deal with, and just, it would be miserable. The, the greatest gift that I can give my kids, besides the gospel, is consistent discipline, teaching, and correction over the long haul. The same is true of God. Hebrews 12.10 says that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Holiness and godly character are better gifts by far than frivolous fleeting pleasures. Trials produce holiness and Christ-like fruits. James 1, 2, and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what I want, steadfastness. That's a superior gift to health and prosperity. Anyone can have health and prosperity, which is a fleeting gift. Those are, they can vanish at a moment. But a child of God who's being transformed into the image of Christ, he can have the lasting gift of steadfastness. Romans 5, 3-5 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Essentially, he's saying the gift of suffering is a tree that yields a harvest of hope. That's the kind of gift that I want from my God and my Father. This hope really is the final expression of a a superior joy in God, and, and that is that we have a better glory coming. We have a hope. We have a better glory. Hebrews 10 32 through 34 is fascinating, confounding even. He says, But recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. How, how small are the things that we lose in this life when we suffer? Paul says that those things can't even be put side by side with the glories we're going to have. He says in, in Romans 8:18, 8, For consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Not worth comparing. Don't even tabulate it. Don't even add up the columns. Weigh all the the known matter of the universe against a bird's feather, and it's it's too generous a comparison. Don't even bother comparing them. In the midst of the greatest of sorrows, we have more than ample cause to rejoice, even while we weep. Those things are not mutually exclusive, rejoicing and weeping. In Christ, we can follow Paul, who says in 3, 8 and 9, or 8 through 11, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He goes on, verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You hear that language, straining forward to what lies ahead. This is a constant expenditure of extreme, lifelong effort. We cannot do it on our own, which leads us to our third point and final point, is that faith finds its strength in God. Faith finds strength in God. Verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is really a fitting way to end the book of Habakkuk. It's a confession of God's care and deliverance as the sovereign Lord of the universe. After all Habakkuk's confusion about God's management of the nations, he just submits to his lordship at the end of the book. He says, God the Lord, Adonai, is my strength. He who is the Lord of the nations, who will bring the Babylonians in and later crush them, the Lord of nature who killed the enemies of his people with hailstones and caused the sun and the moon to stop in their place. That God is his strength, the sovereign Lord in whom Habakkuk trusts. Verse 19 harkens back to Psalm 18, which is really a direct quote from 2 Samuel chapter 22. And it's a psalm of deliverance from David after he escaped the hand of Saul. <coughs> he says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made his, my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trained my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Habakkuk says, God... The Lord is my strength. In this life of sin and misery, it contains many difficult trials and many hurdles. And oftentimes with these hurdles, I feel like the last guy in the race who's knocking his knees on every single hurdle. I'm weak. I'm feeble. I'm frail. My favorite text to preach, I think I've preached it in four different congregations. I think it has special significance to me as a weak man called to stand behind the pulpit, but it's 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. through 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
I am weak, but the Lord is my strength. Jesus said, without me, you can do some things. You can do nothing. He will sustain those who are his to the end. I feel like the little child from Jesus loves me. They are weak, but he is strong. This life of sin and misery is fraught with many trials and afflictions. But for those who live by faith, joy and rejoicing cut through the tears. It cuts through the sorrows. We can have joy and we can weep. We can rejoice in the God of our salvation. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Amen. Amen. Amen.